Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon. I'm a 27-year retired veteran. And my co-host tonight, and on most nights, straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD Detective Phil Grimaldi. How you doing tonight, Phil? Doing pretty good, Billy, and I'm uh, a big fan of our guest tonight, so I'm ready to get right into it. Great. I'm, I'm super excited about our guest tonight, too. And if, folks, if uh, she sounds... Um, intellectually superior to us it's because she is yes <laughs> like uh we're, we're cops all right so we we know our shit but she's much more intellectual than us so folks this is police off the cuff we're gonna go into our song and we'll get right into the show and on the show tonight is heather mcdonald and i'll introduce her in more depth after this tune it's a show with two retired detectives that were in the thick of New York crime, fast and hectic. They got some stories and some jokes. Even an interview with the most popular folks. Off the cuff, off the cuff. One episode just ain't enough. Get a little laughter and an interview too. It's maybe the best thing you can do. Hello, folks, and welcome back. Heather McDonald is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor of City Journal and the New York Times bestselling author. She's a recipient of the 2005 Bradley Prize. McDonald's work at City Journal has covered a range of topics, including higher education, immigration, policing, homelessness, and homeless advocacy, criminal justice reform, and race relations. Her writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times, Los Angeles Times, The New Republic, and The New Criterion. McDonald's newest book, The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture, that was written in 2018. It argues that toxic ideas first spread by higher education have undermined humanistic values, fueled intolerance, and widened divisions in our larger culture. Without reading her entire life story, I'm going to just right now Welcome to the show, Heather McDonald. Great to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Sergeant Cannon. And I'm not going to demean book learning. I think everybody should read <laughs> as much literature as possible. But let me say, street learning is also very important and, and understanding human relations, which is what's necessary to be a cop, ideally, uh, is also a very profound uh, type of wisdom. So I don't... I don't uh, well, you know, Heather, I would never put down my education. I always tell people I have a PhD in street Right. You know, I have an AA, a BA, an MS, and a PhD in street. So uh, I just said that to be funny about your intellectual superiority, which I believe is true anyway. But uh, <laughs> Heather, you know, one of the things that we've been talking about, we cover a lot on this show, and we love New York City. We really do. Uh, I was a cop for 27 years. Phil was 21, 22 years. And, you know, we've been in touch with New York City basically our whole lives. And I don't like what's happening to New York City. And, this new uh, district attorney, Alvin Bragg, who is a, a, a protege of um, uh, Soros, you know, who gave him a million dollars for his campaign. And this whole decarceration philosophy 
of not punishing criminals and instead putting them into diversion programs makes no sense to me. And I think the city is going to suffer for it. Well, of course it will. And it's important to say that Alvin Bragg and the Manhattan DA that was elected in the same election that we elected Eric Adams as mayor is hardly alone. Uh, he's not he's not alone among prosecutors and he's not alone among uh, an ideology that has been driving the criminal justice system overall, whether it's statutory or how judges work or even how police uh, commissioners and, and chiefs work for over two decades now. And the driving philosophy that is leading Alvin Bragg to say he's not going to prosecute uh, criminals who resist arrest, which is probably the biggest blow he could take at civilized order, or he's not going to prosecute looting or theft or trespass or prostitution or drug crimes or many gun possession crimes. The reason that Bragg is doing that the reason that George Gascon in LA anticipated Bragg and also saying he's not going to prosecute resisting arrest and theft and trespass uh, and, and uh, Kim Fox in Chicago and Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, they are all united by a single concept, which is disparate impact. And unless the American public understands what disparate impact is about and is ready to reject this as a controlling philosophy in law enforcement, we are not going to return to safe streets again. The reason that Bragg doesn't want to enforce the criminal law is because if he does so, he will sadly, but inevitably, have a disparate impact on black criminals. And that's not because the criminal justice system is racist. It's because blacks commit crime at vastly disproportionate rates. You cannot enforce the law without having a disparate impact on blacks. The only reason, only way to avoid disparate impact is to not enforce the law. And that's what's been going on for years. You know, we Proposition 47 gets invoked a lot for the spate of mass lootings, smash and grab theft that's going on in California. Prop 47 antedated uh, the George Floyd riots and the convulsions over phony white supremacy that came out of the George Floyd riots, that was passed in 2014, but that was an exactly identical initiative to empty California prisons and say, we're not going to send people to prison. Why? Because blacks are disproportionately represented in the prison population. Again, I cannot stress enough. The reason for that disparity is not racism. It's not that the cops are racist. It's not that prosecutors are racist. It's not that judges are racist. It's that blacks commit crime at higher rates and they're victimized at much higher rates. And if Black Lives Matter meant anything, it would care about those black victims, which it doesn't. Very, very well said. You know, I mean, oh, uh, to me, that's it's very brave what you said, because Absolutely. in today's media and in cancel culture, just for speaking the truth, you can be canceled. And, you know, having said all that, I just want to show a little bit of Alvin Bragg and his most recent, um, after he put out that 10-page memo to his staff, that he actually tried to walk back after he put it out because he's a coward. Uh, coward. And he's, a, he's a coward because it's in, if it wasn't written down, if he said it, maybe he could do a tap dance. But it's written down. It's like Moses put the tablet on the mountain. Guess what? 
you chiseled those uh those commandments in in the in the tab. You can't take it back. Let me just put him on the screen here for a second. We're going to see what he has to say because part of it is really ridiculous what he has to say. Uh, it makes not a lot of sense to me, but we'll. Nice to my throat. I wanted um, to give voice to the people who know those experiences uh, and to give context to those who don't. In a memo to you can raise the volume then. Anonymous misdemeanors, prostitution, and fear evasion will no longer be prosecuted. Bragg says the changes will allow attorneys more time to prosecute violent offenses. Obviously, there's going to be a government response, um, but for for fear evasion, it's not going to be incarceration. It's not going to be you know, a, a shootout my block a month ago. Uh, you know, we need to be focused on that. The new guidelines are framed by principles, including investing more in programs to keep offenders out of jail, reducing the pretrial jail population, limiting the number of youth tried as adults, and providing more programs to those returning home after incarceration. I have not communicated with the DA. Uh, I have not... Uh looked over and analyzed exactly what he's calling for. But on the campaign trail, Mayor Adams advocated for both more services and also higher bail and incarceration for offenders. Adams says he hopes to convene a meeting with lawmakers, DAs, and law enforcement. We want everyone to get in the room and operate off the same playbook. We can have the justice we deserve with the public safety we need. The Police Benevolent Association says it has, quote, serious concerns about the message these types of policies send to both police officers and criminals, adding it will, quote, look forward to discussing these issues with District Attorney Bragg. Alvin Bragg says he welcomes the discussion. Now, these policies really mark a major shift for an office that's earned a reputation of being heavy handed when it comes to criminal justice. Andrea Klein Thompson. Hilarious. I mean, heavy, first of all, DA, you know, the Manhattan DA's office was anything but heavy handed. Never no. were they ever heavy handed. Well, of course. I mean, Cyrus Vance, the process, uh, predecessor to, to Bragg, himself announced that he was not going to uh, prosecute fair beating, turnstile jumping, uh, and a whole host of other low level quality of life crimes. This distinction that these uh, left wing prosecutors make between, well, we're going to prosecute violent crime and ignore the low-level stuff uh, is, of course, specious. The low-level stuff is what communities care about. I've spent a whole lot of time at police community meetings in the 41st precinct of the South Bronx and the 40th precinct uh, in, in East New York, Brownsville, Bed-Stuy. And what I inevitably hear people begging the cops to do is to get the drug dealers off the corners, out of their corridors. They don't want people smoking marijuana in their own buildings, in their lobbies. They want the kids off the corners who are fighting, hanging out by the hundreds. They, they want truancy prosecutions, loitering, uh, litter, car speeding. It's the low level stuff that sends the message that communities are out of control. And when when Bragg and Gascon and, 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 and Krasner say, oh, we're going to let that go because that will give us a handle on violent crime, they're simply wrong. There's a great chain of being in criminal offending. Uh, the people that are committing violent crimes are also committing the low-level offenses. We certainly found that with fair beating when Giuliani became mayor in 94 under, and brought in William Bratton. Uh, and by stopping people coming into the subway by jumping turnstiles, they lowered crime and they found a lot of very heavy criminals as well. 
Absolutely. You know, you know, Heather. One of the things that we harp on here, of course, is what you just said, and that is the uh, enforcing fair beating, because it is so important. And I'm just going to uh, give a a uh, example of that. And and it's the person that just shot and killed the girl in the at the Burger King up in East Harlem on 116th Street. Now, do you think that he pays his fare? Do you think when he came from Brooklyn to Manhattan to stick up that Burger King, when he was carrying a gun, that he paid his fare? Of course he didn't. So if he would have j- jumped the turnstile, the police would have stopped him and grabbed him with his gun. The other thing is, he's they overuse the word homeless. Because uh, homeless doesn't mean what it means now to a lot of woke, progressive people. He is a, a full-fledged EDP. He's a criminal, and he just happens to be homeless. That doesn't make him... Just let's label him homeless. Look at him. He's out of his mind, this guy. 100%, Billy. And, you know, all of the things that uh, Heather cited regarding Alvin Bragg, there was a little bit of pushback with a lot of the things that he uh, said that he's not going to prosecute. He doesn't want to send people to jail for more than 20 years, whether it be murder, could be multiple murders. He doesn't want to send people to jail, period. But there's one of the things that really jumped out at me, and I think that there should be outrage about it. He's not going to enforce prostitution. Now, prostitution is aimed at young women. Where are the women's groups in this country that are going to be jumping up and down? The pimps are celebrating. They're probably tipping their hats to Alvin Bragg that now they have a free reign to expand prostitution in in the county of Manhattan, in New York City. It's disgusting that it's aimed towards young ladies, young women. If there's no enforcement, how are we ever going to interact with a young lady that might have been forced into it, whether it be drugs, whether it be a, a single parent home, whatever it is, if they're arrested, they could be interdicted where there could be a program set up for them to give them help to get out of that horrible lifestyle that's being aimed at them. Prostitution is aimed at young women, young ladies, teenagers. We know this. Uh, human trafficking, it all falls into the to the realm of prostitution, and he's not going to enforce that. That's one of the things. Listen, the fair beating, Billy, you're 100% right. If that, and I have to use this word, if that scumbag was carrying a gun and went on the train and jumped the turnstile and police were allowed to enforce jumping the turnstile, that young lady might be alive. He killed a 19-year-old girl that handed over the money. What could be worse than that in this world and that, that woman's family? I mean, they, they got to be – I have three daughters myself. There's nothing worse than that to me, what's going on. So all of those things that we're talking about, but the prostitution thing to me should be something that should be jumping off the page at women's groups. Where are all the the, the uh, Me Too movement? I mean, he's, he's basically thumbing his nose at young women that could be targeted – for prostitution and saying, I'm not going to enforce it. It's ridiculous. And I just think that there is some pushback. He tried to walk it back. Like you said, Billy, had he not put, put it in black and white, I don't think there would be as much uh, pushback. And Adams already had a, a pullback on some of the things as he tried to say that the subway system is safe after that young lady was pushed in front of the subway, that 40 year old Asian young lady that, that, I mean, that was a real EDP. And again, you cited it, Billy. The word homeless is being overused. When you th- when you say homeless in 2022, people are thinking, well, somebody that lost their job because of COVID and they don't have a place to live. No, these are people that are mentally ill, that are being put onto the street. The, the guy that did that hor- horrific crime that pushed that young lady onto the subway, his 
Sister said, I don't know why they let him out. She said, he's been mentally ill for many, many years and he belongs to be institutionalized. Yet he was roaming the subway system. That's not homeless. That's a person in need of help. And we've just turned our backs on it and they're giving them tents. And there was the other case in, in California where that young lady was killed by a home. They're calling it a homeless person. It's obviously somebody mentally ill. Uh, she was working in a furniture store by herself. I don't want to go on too long, but... There's just so many things that need to be addressed. And the prostitution thing is really jumping out at me. Well, I'm afraid, Detective Grimaldi, you're a little behind the times with feminism and, and sex workers, as they're called today, uh, because feminists have made it a cause celebre to destigmatize prostitution. And I know you're taking the position that these women are victims. You know, yes, they are. And yes, they're not. I mean, some of them are, are deliberately doing this, and I'm not going to completely absolve them of, of personal responsibility. Uh, but nevertheless, there's certainly been a big push even before Alvin Bragg came on the scene or George Gascon uh, to try and somehow normalize this and, and, and celebrate it as a uh, aspect of, of women's sexuality, which is of course ludicrous. I mean, it is, it is absolutely a, if you, if you wanted to believe in the patriarchy or rape culture, which I do not, I do not think that those are, valid descriptors of American society today. I think women are basically running things to the woe of us all. Um, but nevertheless, uh, you know, having men pay for sex does look like it's, it's somewhat patriarchal. Uh, but nevertheless, that, you know, that's your, your position to see these as, as victims is not really what feminists are telling us to see. As far as uh, the so-called homeless, I agree completely. This was a concocted phrase that advocates came up with in the early 1990s that was alive from the start. The real problems of people that are on the street is a combination of mental illness and chemical abuse. And when you combine both of those, you get much higher rates of violence. The mentally ill by themselves are not necessarily more violent, but if they're substance abusers, their violence ratchets up enormously exponentially compared to the general population. This is a problem that can be solved overnight by simply not allowing street colonization. You know, uh, in response to the terrible, terrible subway pushing over the weekend, the response of law and order types like Eric Adams, and I hope he remains a law and order type, I'm not myself fully persuaded yet, but is to say, well, we need more cops on the subway platforms or in the system. That's completely wrong. You know, a cop on a platform, and they still are sort of staying up in the higher reaches, uh, people that don't live in New York don't realize there's several layers you have to go down into, further into Hades for those that, that can't even imagine getting on a subway, but there's a upper level and then a, the actual lower level where the uh, trains come in. And most cops are still on the upper level, but even if they were to go on the level where the tracks are, they can't possibly be numerous enough to stop one of these subway pushings, which are happening at a rapidly increasing rate. The only solution is to not have these people roaming the streets. And that requires doing something which nobody really wants to do, which is to greatly strengthen the powers of involuntary commitment. People that are crazy should not be out in public because they are a danger to themselves and to the public. 
but nobody wants to talk about that. As long as they're out there, you can put as much cops on in the streets or in the subways as you want. These things are going to keep on happening. And we simply have to say we're enforcing bourgeois norms. We are not allowing vagrants to colonize our streets. The law abiding have the primary claim on being able to walk without squalor uh, and encampments and, and, and needles and feces all around. That is not something a civilized society has to put up with. You know, Heather, you, well, I, I told you you were so, uh, intellectually superior. You used, you used the word colonization. I like that. See, we would just, we would just say, first of all, I, I spoke about this the other day too. Homeless people do not belong inhabiting the subway cars. They do not belong living in there. And if, if a society thinks that thinks that's okay, then we've lost the society. They do they belong the hell out of there. They used to have the Transit Bureau homeless outreach unit that would remove all these people from the system. Whatever happened to that? Well, de Blasio became mayor for eight years. He said, hey, do whatever you want to do. Just recently, I saw someone pitching a tent on the mall on 86th Street and Broadway on the Upper West Side, the bastion of liberalism on, on New York City, the Upper West Side. That's not okay either. And as you say, mentally ill people that are dangerous do not belong patrolling the streets, intimidating people, urinating, defecating on the sidewalks, setting up tents. This is not Los Angeles, and they don't belong doing that in Los Angeles either. This is lunacy. This is total lunacy. Well, that's an interesting distinction. This is not Los Angeles. You're assuming that that's sort of the norm in LA, which it is, but I don't quite get that, but it, it, it should not be the norm anywhere. And No, it shouldn't, but it's coming here. It's st- Everything that starts out West comes East and it's coming here. You know, well, I don't know. I, I, I don't know which way the direction flows. I mean, LA Skid Row is, is just absolutely infernal. I've never seen anything like it. Nobody has, who's not seen Skid Row can possibly imagine that you have block upon block of utter human waste, misery, predation. It is extraordinary. But I would say that New York, uh, you know, Penn Station, we put up a fairly good competition and uh, (laughs) the homeless issue in, in L.A. is certainly spreading beyond anything. I grew up there and it's uh, it's getting into places in the West Side that nobody would have ever believed before. But uh, it's true that the policing revolution did begin in New York under Mayor Giuliani and Bratton and then spread elsewhere. So we should be the first to reclaim our streets. But basically what's happened across the country, because obviously this is the same thing in Seattle, Portland, uh, Austin, Washington, D.C., is that the elites have lost faith in bourgeois norms. They don't believe it's legitimate to enforce norms about uh, public decency, respect for property, respect for public spaces, respect for the rights of others, that that is somehow oppressive. Again, a lot of this is driven by race. Uh, you know, you, you dig a little deep in things that are being unwound in a society and you'll often find, again, those same tragic racial disparities in behavior. Uh, but but we have to be able to say as a civilization that we don't have nothing to apologize for in expecting that cities be clean, they be orderly, and that they not be places where people uh, just 
take over streets. I'll, I'll avoid colon the word colonization and just say spread their crap out and and prevent the law abiding from going to work and, and uh, you know, having an urban life. It's normal. I just got to make one more point about the prostitution, uh, you know, him not pro uh, prosecuting prostitution cases. It's been my experience. And I read an article recently when they did an arrest of several pimps. They young women that come from broken families. Uh, they usually have uh, their runaways. They have issues at home. So they take them in, they give them, they show them some comfort zone. Then they try to get them addicted to narcotics whatever the drugs may be, crack, cocaine, heroin, uh, marijuana, whatever it is. And they're targeting these young ladies. Now, I know there are the prostitutes that do it of their own volition. Uh, that maybe there's, uh, there, I've known prostitutes that have children and they're functional and they do it to support themselves, whatever. I get that. But there is that other percentage of young kids that are being targeted, usually teenagers, usually underage, 16, 15, 14 years old. That was the case that I'm talking about. It was a case in Canarsie, Brooklyn, where these pimps were targeting young runaways. They would go over to um, uh, Port Authority in Manhattan and, and try to pick up uh, young girls that were running away from home, whatever the case may be. Turning a blind eye to that, there's going to be the ones that are doing it of their own volition. They may be older, but there's going to be that percentage of whatever it is. If we could save one child by enforcing prostitution, in New York City, I think it should be done. He's a disgrace, as calling himself a district attorney. He's elected to enforce law, not change law. If you want to change laws, you go to the state legislature and you you lobby. And, and they're, they're just as nuts as Bragg, the state exactly. legislature. You know, Heather, I just wanted to say one of the, the worst thing that I saw that Bragg had in his memo, and I'm sure you're going to agree with me, is that a robbery first degree with a firearm, if no one's hurt, He's going to plead it down to a pet larceny. And then he tried to walk that back. He tried to say, he didn't. I have the memo right in front of me. That is outrageous. How about the person that has a gun stuck in their face? What is their psycho, psych, uh, the psyche like? It takes their life. That's right. What, what is their psyche like after the guy leaves with the money and walks away with that firearm? And then he hears that this moronic district attorney is prosecuting for a pet larceny. How about the mental health of the victim? Well, I didn't hear Bragg walk anything back in that clip you showed. Maybe he's done it elsewhere and that clip wasn't representative, but I, I don't think he's walking it back. But I agree with you. You know, the person who's got a gun, even if he doesn't use it, he'll use it the next time. And to say right. that we're not going to bring down the force of, of civilizational anger on somebody who's just, I mean, you know, you realize... What sort of entitlement mentality is it that says, I have a right, you've got something I want, I'm going to take it, whether it's in mass looting of clearing out these stores or one-on-one -on -one street robbery. It's just, it's just extraordinary. And, and that person, uh, it would be nice if we could reform people. You know, it would be nice if, if services could be an alternative to incarceration because prisons are not ideal. And, and they're not as well run as they should be. They should be absolutely immaculately safe and clean and, and uh, provide opportunities to work and reform yourselves. They're not. Uh, nevertheless, it's the best we've got. You know, there's, there's very little record of success for these, these social service programs. All they do is feed money into nonprofits that accomplish very little. So uh, 
whether you use a gun or not during a robbery, that is one of the most violent crimes that there is. And yes, of course it's terrifying. And it's, and you're allowing that guy to sort of be, be, have a slap on the wrist and to go do it again. Uh, as far as let me, we'll get back on the prostitution thing. I would also say though, you're absolutely right. And you know, it's a, it's a result of family breakdown. These are girls that don't have fathers, but I would also say from the community's perspective, if you have lawlessness going on in the streets, it, it just, people know how to read the signs and it is terrifying whether it's a drug set on your corner or seeing pimping uh, to have to live in a place where you know that criminals are at work. And so the, the, the role of the police and prosecutors is to get those ac illegal activities off the streets so people can go and feel like they can go and shop without having to rub shoulders with people that are violating the law. 100%. John Donahue, thank you so much for the 999 Super Chat. He says, I'm surprised that the business owners are not speaking out more on these crimes. Visitors won't be coming back to New York. Well, a whole group of high-end um, CEOs went to Washington, D.C. last week to speak to Congress about the smash and grab robberies. Apparently, they've had it. And uh, imagine you have to go to Congress because you can't go to your local police because the district attorneys are refusing to prosecute. So you have to circumvent that and go right to Congress. This, that's a country that is not working. There's something wrong there, you know? Well, also, Congress doesn't have much... Uh control. I, I can't remember what now they were asking for. I think it may be uh, insurance or better surveillance technology. But as we all know, law enforcement is very local. And uh, I often hear from conservatives who have these conspiracy theories about the left wanting a federal takeover of law enforcement. So I don't think they'd be approving of that. But, but certainly, uh, it's amazing to me you know, in, in my world, I do rub shoulders with the left and I read the New York Times. A lot of people are still clueless <laughs> about what's going on. They really don't know because the media is not covering it. Uh, the, the conservative media is, but but most people still don't know the anarchy that is breaking out. And we are really uh, playing with fire here in allowing norm after norm of respect for property uh, to be torn down that, you know, respect for property is not some, you know, rich person, capitalist, oppressor, predator concern. It is really the foundation of civilization. You have small businesses have to be able to trust that they can sell their wares and that their employees can be safe and that they can build on their entrepreneurial vision without having things stolen from them. I mean, we're returning to really a sort of a barbaric middle ages where you have brigands, uh, you know, ro roaming the mountains and, and, and taking people in their stagecoaches and, and, you know, depleting them at, at gunpoint and stealing everything they've got. We're getting to that point. And, and that is not something that is conducive to civilization or to building prosperity. Heather, I don't know if you've seen this. I'm going to play this quickly and uh, tell me if you've seen this. This video filmed this morning from Air 7 HD near Lincoln Park. You can see the volumes low, Billy. Volumes low. Empty boxes from companies like Amazon and UPS. Union Pacific says LA County rail thefts have increased 160% in the past year. The company is calling on District Attorney George Gaston to reconsider his special directive so that these thieves can face harsher consequences. 
Union Pacific says they've increased the number of special agents on site. Hello, I'm Mark Brown. Get more. Is that outrageous? They're, they're, they're robbing the trains or burglarizing, uh, committing lawsuits on the trains and just dumping all the stuff they don't want on the tracks. So if you have something important being delivered to your house from Amazon, say uh, a part for your computer, they're just going to throw that away. But this is also, to me, this is a national security problem because commerce is how a nation runs. And if you can't depend on the commerce because you're letting thieves be unpunished, this, this is just, again, outrageous, outrageous. Well, one doesn't want to sound apocalyptic, but really we are, we are breaking down the norms of civilization. And I say again, just think of that entitlement mentality that people that have been so lacking in any kind of socialization from their parents or so taken over by a really pathological peer culture that they just think they're entitled to go and steal. It's, it's mind boggling. And this is happening again and again. Uh, and basically the nation is turning its eyes away largely because of the race element. I mean, we've seen those videos of the smash and grab looting. It's, it's virtually exclusively black kids that are doing this. And because of that, that's why nobody wants to talk about it. But we've got to get over the inhibition of disparate impact and say, we're gonna enforce the law uh, in a colorblind fashion and make sure that criminals are not left on the streets to prey against on overwhelmingly uh, black victims, but it's spreading. I mean, these carjackings are in St. Louis, in, in St. Paul, Minnesota, in Minneapolis, in Chicago, they are spreading to a suburb near you. Uh, there was a woman who barely was able to grab a toddler out of her, her SUV before it was carjacked. People have been dragged to death in these, in these carjackings. It's just absolutely shocking. And maybe this will wake up the liberal soccer mom you know, if, if she's going to her SUV coming out of her gym and gets, gets carjacked, which is happening as well in these suburbs. Uh, but, but really, things are moving very fast. And I, I think that um, I don't know how to break through the public uh, unwillingness to, to understand what's going on. You know, Heather, we just started hearing the term again, carjacking. And I remember when it became very popular in the 90s, they actually made it a federal crime. And the penalties for it were like doubled or tripled. And now it's like people are like, oh, what's carjacking? You know, all of a sudden they're like, they didn't, it didn't occur to that, to them that this could happen. And it's happening again. All, you know, history always repeats itself. And when you have these, again, the, these prosecutors that are refusing to prosecute these crimes, it, anarchy is the law of the street. Billy, there was the uh, Washington, D.C., uh, Uber driver that was carjacked, I would say within the last year by the two yeah. teenagers and they, they killed him, and they were each sentenced to like three to five years or something. And you know, what kind of deterrence is that going to show? You know, there's, there's no, we need, we need deterrence that, you know, it's obvious they were doing this looting, the smashing grabs with the police right there. They weren't afraid of the police. So when you have a society that's not afraid of the law, not afraid of the police, they know that there's, specifically in New York, bail reform, where most of the crimes, you're not even going to get bailed. You're going to be out before the officer finishes the police work. There is no deterrence. And it's just going to lead to an out of control society. And we're there now. And with all the hope of 
Adams may be turning it around. I'm starting to lose a little bit of hope that he's going to have an impact because, again, Heather brought it up. He wants to put uniforms into the subway. We need enforcement. Uniform is only going to give so much of a deterrence. If they go down, like she said, if they go down and they jump the turnstile or, you know, they're carrying a gun and they're not going to be tossed for it, then what good is it? You know, there's there's narcotics being delivered on subways. There's so many different things that could be, uh, you know, that could be enforced in the subway that would change things. He said himself after the pushback when he said that he it was a uh, a perception that the subways aren't safe after that last lady was thrown in front of the subway and killed. Uh, he he pushed back and he says, "Well, when I ride the subway every day, I don't feel safe." He's a retired police officer that carries a gun and he doesn't feel safe. So what is that telling you? I mean, he's on the right track, but is he going to be able to institute the policies that will make things safer in the subway? And he has all the tools right at his fingertips. They keep saying that the cops have to get behind the mayor. No, I think it's the other way around. The mayor has to get behind the police commissioner. The police commissioner has to get behind the cops. They have to institute enforcement and wherever the chips fall and Obviously, if, if a cop does something that's criminal, then he needs to be held accountable. But if a cop acts within the letter of the law, then you have to back them and you have to take the stand that you're not allowed to ride the subway for free. There's a price to pay if you jump the turnstile. And if you carry a gun in New York City, it was just a few years back, you got a three-year sentence. Guys are being arrested six and seven times carrying a loaded firearm and not even being given bail. What kind of deterrence is that? And specifically, it's gangbangers most of the time. So the tools are there. Bill, you and I know what works. We were both in anti-crime for a number of years. Um, the myth of systemic police racism, I saw that as one of the articles that you wrote, Heather. I could just talk about that for hours about how there's no such thing as racial profiling in my mind. When I would go into work, when I was in anti-crime, we would look where the crimes were happening. And then we would look at the modus operandi, who the perpetrators were and how they acted. And then we would go out and try to do observations to try and find similar type individuals. Unfortunately, I worked in a precinct in the 7 precinct in Brooklyn during the 80s. That's when I was in anti-crime where most of the crimes were be, being committed by African Americans. So who are we going to stop, question, and frisk? And I use stop, question, and frisk for a reason. It's put out there as stop and frisk and it sounds kind of barbaric, but stop, question, and frisk is one of the greatest tools that anti-crime officers have to enforce, to bring down robberies, enforce not carrying firearms, and we would stop who fit into the pattern. If we had a pattern, if it was a male white that was doing the robberies, that's who we would observe and try to try to stop or, or, or observe and get to the, you know, from mere suspicion to the next level and be able to stop that person. If it was blacks, then it, we would observe blacks. If it was Hispanics, then we would observe Hispanics. It's a fake myth about racial profiling and and the, the article that you wrote, Heather, the myth of systemic police racism. It's just a myth. It's not true. You know, Heather, I want to I wanna segue into this because this is very important, and I think you speak very eloquently on this. And this is, of course, your book that you wrote in 2016, The War on Cops. And this wasn't just a, um, a New York City thing. This was maybe even an international thing this was certainly was national that the powers that be let's say, I'll, I'll say who it was the left went after the police and they made the police the enemy 
and we watched the summer of love, the peaceful riots. I love the CNN video where they're saying it's mostly peaceful and there's a conflagration behind them. You know what I mean? And, and they're like, it's mostly peaceful and the whole neighborhood's burning down. It, it, to me, that said it all. Well, the war on cops was inspired by what I called the Ferguson effect, which was the 2014, 2015, 2016 era of cop riots. You're referring uh, Sergeant Cannon to the George Floyd riots, the mostly peaceful yes. protests. So, but the Ferguson effect that I wrote about in the war on cops was the first iteration of what happens when the cops depolice and criminals get emboldened after the Michael Brown myth of hands up, don't shoot. And the, the riots that started in Ferguson, St. Louis, then we had Baltimore, Freddie Gray riots in, in 2015. And the result was in 2015 and 2016, you had the largest two year increase in homicide in this nation's history. Well, we now have uh, either Ferguson effect 2.0 or the Minneapolis effect after the George Floyd race riots uh, that 2020 saw the largest percentage increase in homicide in this nation's history, which is nearly 30%, which is an astounding increase. Uh, so the war on cops was the second of my uh, two police books, the first being Are Cops Racist? that gets at the racial profiling myth and the fact that the cops cannot fight crime without having a disparate impact. Uh, but it, it rebuts all those lies about car stops being racist, uh, pedestrian stops being racist, the incarceration rates being racist, and talks about what is actually going on in the community and the fact that there is enormous support. You know, I uh, I hear these poor elderly ladies, the ones wearing these great hats that stand up in police community meetings and blurt out spontaneously, apropos of nothing, how lovely when we see the cops, they are my friends. They're terrified to go down to their building lobbies because those lobbies are, I'm gonna use the word again, colonized by trespassing youth who are smoking weed, selling drugs, and they depend on the cops and their voices are never heard. So what I tried to do in the war on cops and our cops racist is give them a voice and tell the truth about policing and crime. You know, Heather, with saying that, uh, we, we both Phil and I did a lot of years in anti-crime. And I, to me, anti-crime is probably the most effective street unit on the police department. However, right now, they're trying to call it something different. They want to call it community safety teams. But to me, a cop that goes into anti-crime now and plays by the rules of, of these people who, as soon as one thing goes wrong, will, will put them their head on a chopping block. And they will not back them at all. They're crazy to work anti-crime right now because in this climate, you're going to arrest someone. Look, they want cops to now, when they do a car stop, list the racial uh, background of the person you stopped. Well, who is that? Right. Who is that designed to go after? That's designed. Same thing with UF two fifty stop question and frisk. And as Phil was saying before, the press likes to stay stop and frisk, and that's weaponizing that against the police. And whenever I hear that, I straighten the journalist out right there. I go, if you just said that, you don't know what you're talking about because you just eliminated 33% of that procedure. And that procedure has to do with the law and to reach a certain level of suspicion so you can get to, fr and maybe frisk, not necessarily stop. The question may 
raise the level of suspicion to reasonable suspicion, which allows the frisk. But don't you dare say stop and frisk uh, Columbia University journalism student that now works for, you know, CBS, ABC, NBC, uh, MSNBC, even worse, because you don't know what you're talking about. And when they say stop and frisk, they say it with such venom, with such venom, like stop and frisk. It's violating the rights. That's the only way to get guns off the street is stop, question, and frisk. The only way that I know. Well, 50% of stop, question, and frisk do not involve a frisk. 50% do. So, but you know, we've we've gone through this in New York ad nauseum. There was the trilogy of lawsuits that was brought uh, against Ray Kelly when he was commissioner. Uh, that was decided by this judge, federal judge Shira Scheindlin, right. uh, that held that the practice of of stop, question, and frisk in New York was unconstitutional, based on the phony methodology of comparing police activity to population ratios. That is the wrong benchmark. The whole issue in the police racism debate is that the activists in the press use the wrong benchmark. They, they measure police activity against population. You've got to measure it against crime. So with, with pedestrian stops in New York, uh, about 53% of those stops have a black subject. Blacks are 23% of the population in New York. For the left, that's all you need to know. That shows that the police are impermissibly singling out blacks for stops. But the relevant benchmark is not population. CompStat, the the crime analysis meetings at one police plaza, the New York Police Department headquarters, don't say, well, you know, we're going to deploy cops based on what the population ratios are. They say, where are the, where is the robberies occurring? Where are the drive-by shootings occurring? Where are the break-ins? And when you look at that, when you look at shootings, uh, <clears throat> blacks in New York City commit about, it varies by year, but between 71 and 75% of all shootings, though they're 23% of the population, if you add Hispanic shootings to black shootings, you account for about 97 to 98% of all shootings in New York City. Whites are 34% of the population. They commit about 2%, 1% to 2% of all shootings. So that's the relevant benchmark. What Let's about the victims? What about the victims? They're always, most of the time, they're, they're either black or Hispanic as well. Right. And that's, that's the safe way to talk about this is to focus on the victims. And I Absolutely. do that a lot. But I'm sorry, I'm also going to bite the bullet and talk about who's committing the crime. Uh, and the fact of the matter is that the cops can't go after that uh, without having a disparate impact on blacks because that's blacks are committing. A, a black New Yorker is 50 times more likely to commit a shooting in New York than a white New Yorker is. So that's the facts. And the police, you know, they don't make up that reality. It's what's handed to them. And, and they can't respond to 911 calls or shots fired calls or, or shot spotter technology without having a disparate impact on blacks. Very well said. You know, we're going to take a quick break with this commercial. Phil, you want to uh, sure. this read? 
Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Uh, this is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories, guys. Uh, if uh, you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube. Please hit that subscribe button. Give us a thumbs up. Ring that bell. We also have a Patreon with three levels. And we have, uh, if you're a, a member of the of our club, YouTube, Police Off the Cuff YouTube, you can go on our YouTube and join the uh, Police Off the Cuff family here. You know, Heather, I just, I love the way you speak about this because, I mean, although I could, I feel the same exact way you do about this. I I mean, this to me, disparate impact also had to do with, they would talk about um, jobs and uh, the workplace. And that's how I mostly heard that being used. Right. Well, I never really heard it used in this fashion. And uh, I, I mean, it's great because it's, when you get someone for, say from the other side to say, no, cops are racist and, you can come up with those statistics that you just were able to come up with and the, the disparate impact theory. It's a very, um, very powerful um, way to, to, to fuel the argument on the conservative side and not even on the right side, you know, because people that, I mean, it just seems like that every step of the way they're taking the tools away from policing and, Stop question and frisk was one of them. It's been made to say just the sound of it. Oh my God. And now this whole new thing with car stops, what are they trying to do to these cops? And I don't know if you heard about the, the recent shooting where two young kids were shooting it out. The police shot at them and hit some innocent bystanders. They're charging the cops with manslaughter. I just, I just, it's unbelievable the things that are happening in this country. Well, How did cops get charged with manslaughter when they were being shot at? It, it just is unbelievable. Well, we saw that with the amazing uh, pylon and that cop that was shooting the girl that was going after another girl with a knife. Uh, where was that? Was it maybe? I think that was Baltimore. Was Louis Louis or Baltimore? Baltimore? Maybe, maybe Milwaukee. Or a uh, suburb, yeah. But, you know, if he hadn't stopped her, she would have killed that other girl. Yes. And, uh, but we're all blaming the messenger again. We're blaming the cop. So, yeah, well, the car stops, you know, you, you, you're you upset about racial data collection. That, too, has been going on for two decades where cops have been required to collect the data of the people, the racial data of the people, people they stop. And again, this, again, your, your viewers have to understand certain key concepts. Yes, disparate impact. That's not my concept. That's a left-wing concept. I'm saying we have to fight against it. The other issue that they should take away from tonight is the problem of the benchmark. Again, with car stops, what they will do is they'll get the number of people that the cops have pulled over who are black and white, and they'll compare it to some population benchmark, whether it's local residents or if they're minimally sophisticated, maybe they'll do a population analysis of who's on the roads, but that's very rare. It'll usually be you know, I don't know, five, 50 percent of stops in, in the Chicago expressways have blacks. And we're going to compare that to 
the population living around there, which is irrelevant because the roadways have a completely different population. But the issue is who's speeding? The benchmark for car stops is who's breaking the traffic laws. Right. That's what you compare it to. And that used to be that we were allowed to study that briefly. The New Jersey State Police were sued for racial profiling in their car stops in the late 90s. And the Attorney General, James Farmer, sold them out, slapped them with a consent decree. After the consent decree went on, the, the, the union said, can we please study speeding on the New Jersey State Parkway and the Garden State Parkway? And they found that blacks speed at twice the rate of white drivers and it speeds over 90, the disparity grows. Recently, there's been an attack in Chicago on red light cameras. These are not cops, allegedly racist cops. These are machines. They're not. They're, not they're racist. Those are racist red racist light cameras. cameras. <laughs> racist cameras. They're racist cameras because red light cameras, which are about as objective as you get, show that blacks are speeding and running red lights at high rates. They're getting ticketed from these red light cameras at higher rates. So now we've decided we're not just going to emasculate the cops, we're going to emasculate the red light cameras because they're telling us a message that we refuse to hear. So the racial data collection, you're, you're behind the times that's been going on for two decades. And the problem is always the benchmark. It's, it's compared to population ratios, and that's always going to end up screwing the cops. Boy, oh boy, that, that what you were just talking about is how the non-enforcement of jumping the turnstile in New York got started. Back a few years back, Brooklyn said, well, we're not going to enforce jumping the turnstile because uh, blacks are overwhelmingly the ones that get the summonses or get right. arrested for jumping the turnstile. So therefore, we're not going to enforce it. Same right. thing with urinating in public, drinking in public, all of those broken windows policies, the lower level crimes. They were thrown out, not enforced anymore because they said it was disparaging against the minority community. So, again, now we have a, a camera that's a machine that doesn't know what race is, and they're saying that that's racist. So it, it's it's something that I don't know when we're going to wake up. A lot of the things that we talked about tonight, and to me, you know, whether you're on the left or whether you're on the right, it's common sense policies. To me, it's all just common sense. We have to target the areas where the guns are, the shootings are happening, where the people are carrying the guns, who they are doesn't matter. What color they are doesn't matter. That's what we have to target. Same thing with the subways. We can't allow dysfunction enabling in the subways. Dysfunction enabling, we're allowing mentally ill people to take over the subway system and throw people on the tracks. And it didn't happen once. The latest one was a couple of days ago with this young Asian woman, but it happened several times in the last few weeks, maybe in the last eight weeks, it's happened two or three times. That's a lot. And luckily in some of those other incidents, the people weren't killed. They got into that little uh, channel under the tracks or whatever it was, and they weren't seriously injured or killed, but it's happening at an alarming rate. So we have to, you know, as a society, we have to step up and say, Let's use some common sense here and let's try and address these problems, these issues. See you, Patrick. Thank you for the $10 super sticker. Uh, I guess you're Generation X. I'm not even sure what that is anymore, but uh, thank you so much. You know, Heather, I just wanted to touch upon one other thing. Some of the tools also, the relatively new tools that the police are using, like facial recognition, 
that's racist too. Apparently, right? They don't they don't want them to use that anymore. Uh, shot spotters. Yeah, it's not the it's not the shot spotter. It's that the results are that they're arresting more black people for shooting because of the shot spotter is so successful. Right. So this is where it gets ridiculous. It just gets outrageous because uh, how about license plate readers? Yep, oh, those are one. so so important to the safety of not just communities but this nation. And you know they're trying to like the left is attacking these tools of law enforcement and trying to pull these tools back. I'm surprised they haven't worked against DNA. They've tried. Well, familial DNA. They yeah. don't want us. They don't That's want us to use that right now. It's definitely yeah. under attack. Familial DNA. Right. Again, it's all about disparate impact that you, 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 you cannot understand our world unless you understand that it's all about avoiding disparate impact. Any, any machine or any human cognitive function that, and, or, or, or law enforcement or any kind of standard, whether it's an academic standard or a criminal law standard that has a disparate impact on blacks is coming down. It is all coming down. We are not teaching algebra and calculus in high schools because blacks have, have not, their math skills are very low. And rather than bring up those skills, we've decided we're just gonna cancel gifted and talented programs. We're not gonna let anybody else to advance in math uh, because we'd rather drag everybody down to the same level. The solution is, is bring the family back together, higher standards, universal expectations, not paternalism, not making excuses and, and uh, refusing to tear our civilization down. But if I can promote my book again, uh, Sergeant Cannon. Absolutely. You know, thank you. This is uh, something that I talk about relentlessly in the book. And if people want the data on policing, on police shootings, on crime, on why cops are doing what they do, uh, it's all there. It, it explains the how we got to where we are today because this has been going on for a very long time it talks about the prison system i go to prisons i go to jails i talk about those and i talk about the academic culture that is that is tearing this culture apart you know heather one of the things too is that um a lot of it has to do with power i mean because the republican party seems to become or is the party of law and order and the Democratic Party seems to be appeasing the criminal element. And it's that is their power base. And whether it's right or wrong isn't important to them. And I I cringed when I watched those riots in Portland where uh, I, I think uh, Senator Lindsey Graham just said recently, for 100 nights in a row, they attacked a police station with Molotov cocktails and shooting uh, rockets at the police station and trying to burn it down. And not a single Democrat gave a shit about it. And now no they're acting about it. Nobody on Jan the January 6th, they're acting like they cared about those cops. Right. Oh, but you didn't care about the ones that were attacked in Portland. A hundred nights. I, when I watched the Chicago police getting pelted with frozen water bottles and they had to stand there, I was like, why are they even there? Put the politicians there. Let them stand there and get pelted with water bottles. It, well, you know, what was the point? The most nauseating moment in the coverage of the January 6th riots, and it was a riot, and I do not at all condone uh, the use of force. I mean, the, the, those rioters were attacking cops, too. 100 percent. Yes. Yeah. They're putting themselves in the same boat as those Antifa, and they are discrediting conservatives otherwise justified claim to be the party of law and order. 
But that being said, I mean, the, the left is, is exploiting this. It is turning it into something much more significant than it was. It's a bad precedent, but it does not represent the direction of this country. The most nauseating moment was seeing CNN anchor Don Lemon weep on camera with that picture of the cop that was being squished in the door. Now, you know, recently, Kiana Hawley, a 43-year-old Baltimore cop, was assassinated in cold blood sitting in her cop car at 1.30 a.m. in South Baltimore by somebody who just came up and shot her in the head uh, two times in the body, other, you know, more than that. No, got no coverage whatsoever. Uh, the New York Times never wrote about it. Uh, and, and Don Lemon did not break down in tears. And there's the, the last year we had 63 cops who were feloniously murdered. A police officer is 400 times as likely to be killed by a black as an unarmed black is to be killed by a police officer. But those cop assassinations, the ambushes, do not uh, elicit tears on the part of the mainstream media. Anyway, this has been great chatting. 100%. Uh, uh, inspector Ron Schindel, thank you so much for the $20 super chat. He's a double inspector. He's a retired NYPD inspector, and he's an inspector now on the Port Authority. Uh, this has been Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. We thank all you guys for listening. Uh, Heather, you were an unbelievable guest. Uh, I, I'd like to uh, just promote your book for one more time. Uh, it was written in 2016, The War on Cops. Uh, it's it's a brilliant book, as you heard. Uh, Heather is a brilliant guest, a brilliant speaker. I know you have a you have a law degree. You're a graduate of Yale, isn't that correct? You're an Ivy Leaguer back in the day. True. True. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't seem, doesn't seem like you want to own that anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, was it was a different time. Phil, final words. Final words. Heather, thank you so much for coming on the show. We had a great conversation. Up on the top of your book, if Bill wants to put it back up again, there's something I think is very important. I want to point it out. This is a book that can save lives. I think that's so very important. The policies of the 80s and 90s, the broken windows policies, saved a lot of lives. Thousands of guns were taken off the street, and the lives that were saved were mostly of uh, black and Hispanic Minority community was uh, saved a lot of lives. That book, uh, that title, and and that little line right there, very, very important. Go out and read it. Uh, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Thank you so much again, Heather. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Everyone be safe. And Heather, thank you so much. Thank you. Stay safe. Everybody. One episode just ain't enough.